Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen Podcast for September 11th, 2013. I'm Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Today, we offer something a bit different, a conversation with Mitch Joel, the president of Twist Image, one of the largest independent digital marketing agencies in North America. He's the author of Six Pixels of Separation and, most recently, of Control-Alt-Delete, Reboot Your Business, Reboot Your Life, Your Future Depends on It. In that book, he outlines what he believes businesses and the professionals that run them need to do to thrive in the current era of technological change and disruption, or, in his words, of business purgatory. Mitch Joel is on the line with me now. Mitch, thanks very much for being with us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, early in Control-Alt-Delete, you make an observation that really resonated with me, uh, at least based on my experience. You say that how we think about business during regular working hours is usually diametrically opposed to how we act as consumers. And I think we see this kind of wishful thinking over and over again. Uh, for example, organizations seem to expect users to behave and interact uh, differently on the web with respect to their organization's websites uh, from the way they themselves behave when they're looking for information. Uh, you say that now we need to think more as consumers than as business people. And I was wondering if you could talk about what that means and what the sort of the best ways are to accomplish that change of perspective. Yeah, it's not really a, an original thought in, in that big sense of the word, although you set it up like it was my sort of grandiose thought. I wish, I wish it were. The thinking just comes from, you know, the years and years of, of running our agency, which has been over a decade and spending tons of time as an evangelist, both as a speaker and writer, sitting in boardrooms where anytime we sort of get beyond the sort of, okay, I get it, I read the book, I read the article, I saw the blog post, I saw you speak, we want to move into this, and we start having the conversation about what it could look like. Let's call it a mobile app. You know, the eyes will start rolling, the sort of uncomfort in the chair, you can feel the body language, and there's a lot of data out there that would suggest things like 25% of branded content apps get downloaded one, get downloaded used once and never again, or these apps get downloaded at a high percentage and never get used, and it just seems so wasteful and so silly. And what I'm trying to get people to understand is it's not that uh, apps don't work. It's that the vast majority of these apps are just terrible. Hmm. Uh, we all use apps that add value to our lives that create a level of utility. And what happens w without fail in a lot of these meetings is the people who are on the opposite side of the table who are, are, you know, are sort of in, in violent disagreement about how to move forward, whether it be for cost or resources or just the uncertainty of it, will we'll sort of bring these stats up and be like this, this stuff it doesn't work yet, it's not as massively adopted as you're saying, et cetera, et cetera. They'll leave the boardroom, they'll get to their desk, and their spouse will call them and talk about booking the family vacation or whatever, and the next thing they do is get off the phone, open up their phone, or, or turn on their computer, and go online to look at stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's that sort of diametrically opposed mindset where you sort of sit and wonder in the boardroom, does anybody do this? And the second you walk out, you realize that everything from your banking and your travel and your entertainment and everything is handled to a certain degree in what I call that digital first posture, that sort of initiation that happens directly in that moment on, on, on a you know, technically connected device. Well, in the book, you, you sort of boil down a lot of what's happening in the business landscape into kind of five major movements that are requiring businesses to adapt or die, or, or I suppose, you know, the way you put it, to, to sort of adopt this digital first posture. 
Let's drill down into some of those, uh, starting with the shift toward direct relationships with customers. Um, many organizations and brands seem to be kind of groping toward this, uh, you know, with setting up some sort of presence on well-known social media channels. But it seems like you're talking about something much more fundamental here in, 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 in these direct relationships. Yeah, the, again, the idea to have a direct relationship is nothing new. What has changed so dramatically in the past couple of years that most brands are paying little to no attention to is the fact that the battle for that direct relationship no longer happens with their competitors. It's happening with their business partners. And so you can take anything from the publishing world to, to whatever and see it happen. As an example, let's take a, a book and their author. Normally what would happen is the author would potentially or not even have a direct relationship with their customer. It might be the bookstore. It might be the book publisher. But suddenly in the food chain, you have the book publisher asking people to follow them on Twitter and blogs and YouTube and all that sort of stuff and Facebook. You have the retailers asking the same thing. You have the author asking the same thing. You have even within the, uh, within the channel, the, the e-readers, the Kindles of the world, the Nooks of the world asking the same thing. And my provocation in the book is that we have to be able to take a step back here and ask ourselves, how much do consumers actually need? How much of that relationship do they actually need? Because with, even within that framework, it's not even just the, the publisher, the author, uh, the bookseller, but the channel that they're on. So if they're on Facebook, Facebook also has a direct relationship, or Twitter, where Twitter has the direct relationship. And it just becomes, from my estimation, not only overwhelming when you look at it from a business perspective, but more dramatically when you look at it from the consumer perspective, is it enough? You know, what do they need? They made a commitment of a $30 book or a $25 book to an author. Do they need six different people within the food chain now suddenly interfering in their news feeds? No, oh, that's interesting. So in some sense, there's this need to forge these direct relationships, but it's also kind of fraught ground in a way because you might be overloading the user. Well, that's the real paradox. The paradox is, is that in the grand scheme of things as a business, the only thing you have is that direct relationship. And so now you're not just doing the battle with your competitors for it, but you're actually doing it with your business partners, which makes it even more challenging because of just the pure saturation that the consumer's feeling. Well, the second big movement you identify is, and I'm just going to go through these at a very high level, uh, is what you call utilitarianism marketing, which I take within my own sphere to mean that the consumer now is in a better position than ever to demand things that add real value and usefulness in a connected world rather than just sort of accepting what businesses persuade them that they want. Um, this seems quite relevant to publishing in particular, in which many of us still seem you know, stuck in kind of a broadcast mode. Could you talk a bit about how uh, utilitarianism marketing differs from traditional, I think, what you, what you call broadcasting and pandering uh, types of communication? Well, I, you know, taking a step back, I, consumers can demand all they want. It's uh, an interesting thing to say. It's a very important thing, but it doesn't really matter if brands don't do anything. And I think the difference that we've seen in the transitions we've seen in the past couple of years that are really going to push things and dramatically change it moving forward is the fact that this is no longer a place where you can just broadcast. I think broadcasting has its merits, and I think brands have been extremely successful to it, with it. But going back to the metric of 25% of these branded content apps get downloaded and used once and never again, the reason is, again, that they're crap. Uh, they don't really provide a utility. They don't pr really provide value. They're narcissistic in a certain perspective. They're just all about the brand. Me, 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 do this, buy this. Here's a coupon. Here's another blast towards you. 
when in reality what you can do is create something that augments the brand narrative. It tells the story in a different way. It adds value, but most importantly, it does so by being consumer-led first, consumer value first. So my favorite example of it, and it's a simple one, but I think it, it does dramatically sort of show and demonstrate what it can be, is there's an app called Sitter Squat. The way the app works is when you turn it on, it knows your location. It tells you how close you are to a clean bathroom. And it's all based off of a wiki platform where you can rate the bathrooms out, bathrooms comment on them. It'll tell you which ones have changing tables if you have little kids. It'll tell you which ones are handicap accessible, all brought to you by the good people at Charmin, Procter & Gamble. And so instead of it being an app where, you know, you've got a red bear and a, and a blue bear and you're, you're trying to pick off little crusts of toilet paper off their butts and for every one you do, you get a point, <laughs> which leads to some coupon discount or a QR code, or you can QR code the roll and get it. I mean, all that stupid crap that you can just do, pardon the pun, in, in the sort of traditional way, mm-hmm. this is an app that if you travel a lot, if you have kids, it provides a tremendous level of utility. I mean, I think the coveted retail environment, the, the coveted place that you want your brand to be is on the home screen of all these devices. Mm-hmm. And I believe that utility is the answer to that. That's interesting. And that's, you know, the, 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 the beauty of that, of course, is that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, uh, through a coupon, get people to buy more Charmin, but it gives them a very good feeling <laughs> about Charmin that kind of carries through to the brand. Yeah, well, and then also what it does is it, it demonstrates that in a world where any brand can publish an idea in text, images, audio, and video and put it out there, why just do the stupid stuff you're doing in a newspaper? Why mm-hmm. not create a real significant value for the consumer that is something that's worthy of being talked about, shared, and, 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 and just getting the brand into different narratives? Yeah. You talk also about the convergence of active and passive media uh, as another major movement, which, of course, conjures up the image, you know, for example, of sitting in front of your TV while interacting with your iPad. One particularly interesting thing for me in this discussion was your contrast, again, in a marketing context with blasting versus touching, the kind of broadcast messages that might have been sent via traditional passive channels versus the more sort of engagement-focused messaging of the newer active ones. But you point out that while we tend to think of engagement as good uh, and blasting as bad, that's, that's not necessarily the case. It's very much a matter of context. You know, at the end of the day, I don't need to create an influencer group of the people who are interested in yoga and healthy eating to let them know that Brand Flakes now has dry, frosted raspberries in it. Uh, it's, it's fine to put up a bunch of billboards, some, some, some end caps in stores, and some just general advertising in the morning or on, on specific health shows through, through specialty channels. Yeah, you don't need to do that sort of let's create content and YouTube videos. It's the type of, of transaction of information that consumers just need in a basic way. So that's one side of it where you have to just be able to appreciate the fact that sometimes advertising is the best way to pay to inform the public of a certain level of, of, of innovation or whatever it is you're doing in your business, and there's nothing wrong with it. The bigger construct, though, is around how we lo- look at what the world is. We, we fail to remember that the Internet was not, is the first media channel that we have as, as a society that wasn't created with the impetus of being led by ads. It happened organically in a different way, and now we're trying to sort of backfeed it mm. and figure out how to monetize it. And so what's happened in, in just you know, classic human culture is instead of thinking of new ways to innovate and create that mm-hmm. engagement, we're copying and pasting the old model. So just applying the old model to the new medium. Yeah, think about you know, a newspaper magazine. Copy and paste the text, put it on the Internet, 
and we're going to dash a bunch of banner ads around it. It's a, it's a passive type of engagement because I'm just reading mm-hmm. in an active channel. You're putting ads around it while banner ads were supposed to be active. They're actually very passive, which is why we call them display banner ads, now display advertising now, uh, on an active channel. Now, conversely, if you, if you sort of flip that paradigm and look at Google, where their AdWord model is based off of I'm active when I'm searching, I'm on an active platform called the Internet, and Google then feeds me active advertising. It looks, feels, and is contextual to the experience. Then you start seeing why Google generates more ad revenue than the entire U.S. print industry. They've understood the mix of active, active, and active, and active, Hmm. instead of it being passive, passive, passive on an active channel. Hmm. And the fourth major movement you identify, what you call sex with data, Uh, I'm going to let you describe what that means. I'd rather hear you describe (laughs) it. I I jokingly tell people that I I call it sex with data only because you'd fall asleep if I just called it data. Um, (laughs) But that's not true, no. The the real sort of thing... We we love data here, actually. No, I I know you do. (laughs) And I jokingly say that you can't throw a marketer down a flight of stairs these days without having the words big data tumble out of their pockets. Um, This isn't about big data, and it's not even about small data. It's about the fact that we have different types of data now. Uh, typically what we have is a world where most brands are looking at linear data, an email address. They send an email, someone opens it, they click, they transact, whatever it might be. Search, same thing. Traditional advertising, a general ad, a billboard, same thing. Put up the ad, someone looks at the transactions, very linear. What's happened in the past couple of years is we have what I call circular data. The circular data is nothing that a brand can actually collect and gather All it is is information that the consumers are willfully putting out in a sort of more natural way, in a non-hierarchical way, onto the Internet. That could be your Facebook profile, it could be Twitter, it could be a blog, it could be YouTube, it could be your LinkedIn profile. And suddenly what you have is is truly that 360-degree spin of who Mitch Joel is. Now you know more than just Mitch at twistimage.com, but you're able to see things like my blog, my Twitter feed, and you're able to have a better holistic perspective of, not just a demographic and psychographic, but rather who this guy is and what interests him. What this leads to, obviously, is a world where we don't have to worry so much about privacy, which is a massive concern, but we can really focus on the most amazing part, which is the personalization. And what we realize through that is that personalization is really the best opportunity for a brand to truly build a future relationship with that consumer because loyalty be damned. I mean, I don't really believe in loyalty. I think that you can have all your points and all your cards that you want in the world. If somebody offers a better product, a cheaper price, whatever it might be, no one's going to say, I'm really loyal to this brand. You know, it just doesn't work that way. And you see that happening today. We've seen it happen over the history of business. And so if you look at that construct of sex with data, which to me is a culmination of the linear data and the circular data to create a better personalized consumer experience where the personalization is so high and augmented in terms of value to the consumer that whatever information you're gathering is being leveraged as a way to make that experience better, but at the same time, it's making your company more profoundly powerful. Clearly, Amazon would be the example of that. And the simplest way to look at it is if you look at all the personalization you get on Amazon, I jokingly say, you know, it's past Father's Day. My wife would say, you're impossible to shop for. And I would say, it's true. I really am difficult to shop for. But when I get that Amazon e-newsletter, I'm like, there's 50 things in there I want. Right? I mean, it, just, it really doesn't know. And my point is that if you took that and said, what does Amazon know about you? They know everything about your credit card information, where you live, where you ship to, what you've looked at, what you haven't looked at. 
if you logged out of Amazon and you cleared the cache in your browser and went back in and shopped at Amazon, it's a terrible experience. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about you. It's a million three things from a million different people. Who knows what's in there? When you can do sex with data, when you can leverage that personalization, it creates that superior experience. And I believe that that's panacea for all brands. You made an interesting comment, though. You said we, we don't have to worry about privacy. Um, is that because you've made the experience so good that people just no longer care about privacy? No, I think we have to care a lot about privacy. I think, you know, when people talk about the abuse of privacy, I say that that's rape with data. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not, that's not, you know, sex, consensual sex is not the same as uh, rape as we know. And what we've seen is we've seen just too many markers cross the line where they're abusing the data and not actually providing any value to the consumer. It's simply that narcissistic me, me, me experience. Mm-hmm. And that's created the calamity in the world that we have. And I, you know, when I talk about the difference between personalization and privacy, I always tell people the same thing, which is from this day forward, now that you've been enlightened to the difference, when you look at articles where people are claiming like privacy, especially in like do not track in that type of world, what you're ultimately seeing is not an issue of privacy at all. It's an issue of personalization. Mm-hmm. Brands are actually trying to say, we want to give you a better shopping experience. And consumers are screaming privacy because they haven't, done the work to understand, and marketers have done a terrible job of explaining the massive chasm that exists between great personalization and privacy. Hmm. Well, the fifth movement uh, in your book is what you call the one-screen world. I really, I really love this idea. Uh, in our particular business of publishing, we so often think about multiple screen sizes and ponder desktop versus laptop versus mobile versus ebook as different channels with different teams, different marketing efforts, even different design principles. But as you put it so well, we live in a world of one screen. The only screen that matters is the screen that's in front of the user right now. Yeah, I mean, so people will say, well, there's companion devices. We're watching TV and playing with our iPhones. There's no doubt about it, but your right eyeball isn't on the iPhone while your left eyeball is on the (laughs) TV screen. You're focused on the screen. The point being that screens are ubiquitous. They're connected. They're cheap. They're everywhere. They're in the palms of our hands. It's going to continue to evolve. We're going to see connected appliances. We're seeing that uptick happen at a crazy level. We're seeing wearable technology. We're seeing things like Google Glass. You can go on and on and on where this sort of world of heads-up display wherever and whenever I need it, is not only a reality, it's inevitability. So now if you go down that road, what you have to better understand then is it's not about what's our mobile strategy, what's our social strategy, what's our web strategy. It's a stupid strategy. It's about thinking about contextual consumers and how they navigate through content and what that world looks like. If you had to constantly turn on your Kindle device and then go back to it because you were reading on your computer screen or on your smart, you go crazy. It's the asynchronicity mm. of these devices where when, you know, it knows where I left off and knows yeah. where I moved that makes it so profoundly powerful. YouTube is a very different experience when you're watching it on your smartphone than when you're watching it on your computer screen than when you're watching it on a TV screen. Why? Because TV, you're sort of watching it like it's TV. On your computer, you're probably huddled over it in an office watching a quick little clip. On, on your smartphone, you're probably holding it on the, on the train. And you're, you're, so your, your influences and your, and your inputs are very, very different. We don't create content and don't think about marketing that way. We tend to think of it siloed. I call them digital ghettos. And it's this massive mistake where we need to better understand that we are quickly in this world of that. And the sort of the, the data point that I use that always sort of makes the jaw drop is the one that if you look at, uh, there's a very infamous chart now that's available through Business Insider that was trying to put global mobile in context. So look, the population, the penetration of all of these things. If you look at this, what has the most penetration in the world is mobile subscriptions. 
and I'm talking more than people have access to electricity and mm. people have access to safe drinking water. Hmm. So, I mean, it, it's dramatic. This one-screen world isn't something that's coming, so be ready. It's here. We're, we're, we're in it right now. Well, I also really enjoyed the second half of the book, uh, in which you talk about the need to not only reboot your business, but also your professional life um, in the face of these new realities. In the book, you go through a similar list of seven triggers, as you call them, that individuals can use to spur this remaking of themselves. But in a way, all of them seem to be summed up in the first one that you identify, uh, the need to adopt, you know, you, and you alluded to this earlier in the context of business, the need to adopt a digital first posture. I think we sort of have a have at least an intuitive grasp of what digital first means uh, in in business in terms of content strategy, marketing, etc. What does thinking with a digital first posture mean on the level of personal and career growth? A lot of people. Let me take a step back. I I had done a corporate event for Mattel in Los Angeles several months ago, and they had a sort of panel of the senior most executives at, during the dinner, and they did a sort of inside the actor studio where they were allowing the team to ask questions. And one of the questions that somebody asked was, What's the, what, what is the one best piece of advice you have received and who is it from? And they went through the, the, the first two people and they got down to, to the third, who was, I think, one of the senior most marketers in the organization. And she said that when she had graduated university and she took on her first job, she wasn't really happy. She thought she had made a bad choice, wasn't sure. So... Um, she was telling this to her father, and her father said to her, remember, every day you're writing your resume. Hmm. And I thought it was a great piece of advice for a father to give a daughter. I think it's a great piece of advice for a father to give a son. I think it's a great piece of advice. But what magnified it for me is that if you sort of place the context of this when she was told this information by her father in a pre-Internet world into the world we live in now, it's even more powerful. Because not only every day are you writing your resume, but every day your resume is three-dimensional now. It's an eight and a half by 11 piece of white paper that you submit into the HR department. It's not a form that you fill out on monster.com. It's a living embodiment of who you are from your Facebook profile to your blog to Twitter to whatever it might be. And I don't think people spend enough time appreciating that they amongst themselves are a media channel, an individual that can publish themselves in text, images, audio, and video instantly for free to the world. And while that doesn't mean you need to be giving commentary on the specific industry you serve, what it does mean is that the opportunity for you to really express who you are and how you think and how you critically think and what you see that's, in, is that, that's important to you, I believe gives you an unfair advantage mm. over the people who believe, well, that's silly to be on Twitter. So if, for me, when I look at the opportunity for individuals to better express who they are, what their passions are, what they care about, what interests them, what inspires them, has never been greater. Well, another great expression from the second half of your book is embrace the squiggle. Uh, talk about that. The most interesting people that we know and admire don't have a career arc that sort of started after high school and the choice they made and moved in a linear fashion at a 45-degree angle to ascend to some sort of leadership role. Hmm. It's very squiggly. Uh, and I, I believe that the most squiggly and most interesting people we, ha we know have these squiggly careers. The interesting thing about it is up until, I would say, a couple years ago, you'd look back and acknowledge that it was squiggly. What I think this new world provides is the opportunity to embrace it from the beginning, to know that it's going to be that mm -hmm. way. If I look back on my career, your career, I'm sure you would probably define it as being somewhat squiggly, but you only did it by almost accident. Mm -hmm. And this new hyper-connected world and the chaos that we have, you can actually do it going forward because the world favors that. Why? 
We used to live in a world where you'd work at one place for 20 plus years, get the watch and a rubber chicken dinner and a pat on the bum. Now we live in a world where people will, and this is statistically proven, have five to six different careers, not jobs, but careers in their mm-hmm. lifetime. So we're in this sort of space of that, you know, Richard Florida creative class world where you can actually push things more than you ever could before. Well, I'd like to close with your exhortation for people to live their lives in startup mode. Uh, you say that you believe e- that each of us has a startup inside. What does that mean and how can that mindset play into our, ac- uh, into our interactions outside of the realm of entrepreneurship in kind of the strictest sense? In a very raw sense, I think there are two types of entrepreneurs. There is the entrepreneur that had an innovation that then tries to capitalize and monetize on it for as long as possible which immediately leads to two things, minimizing risk and mitigating mistakes. I think at the other end of the spectrum, you have the more interesting entrepreneur, and that's the entrepreneur of constant, uh, constant innovation. It is the person that's willing to cannibalize their business to invent the future of the industry that doesn't yet exist. And it's very easy to point to certain brands that fit in one category versus brands that fit in the other. So it's obvious to go with Apple in one and, let's say, a BlackBerry in the other. And you could do this countless times with different industries that you serve and different brands that serve that. I believe that you can guide your career in the same way, that there's no reason not to think of your career as this constant cannibalization to moving towards where the industry is going and what makes it better. And the reason I say that is I run a digital marketing agency. I've been doing so since 2000, so 13 years at this agency, but I've been in the digital space since the late 80s. And I can tell you that currently in our organization, which is about 100-plus people over two offices, is we're hiring for jobs that didn't exist when we started this agency, Mm -hmm. which is pretty dramatic in a 10-year span. But what makes it more dramatic, I think, is the fact that we're hiring for these jobs in sectors that didn't even exist. Mm. And when I look at that, I, you know, the subtitle of the book is Reboot Your Business, Reboot Your Life, Your Future Depends on It. And when I wrote it, I wrote it from a very positive place. And I was surprised as the interview started rolling in that people were like, oh, it sounds really scary. You're freaking us out. I look at it, and this is what I ultimately tell people, is th- there has never been a more opportune or more fascinating time to be in business than right now. The generations before us, while it was somewhat interesting, and they had definitely interesting moments, I don't think it was as interesting as this one. And so those who see that as a threat to their job, I feel bad for. Uh, but those who see it as a potential opportunity or those who I can push towards seeing it as an opportunity gets me much more excited. Mitch Joel, thanks very much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you for dropping in to the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for September 11th, 2013. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org, where every day some of the sharpest minds in scholarly publishing detail, discuss, and debate the trends shaping the business. You can also comment on this podcast episode on its blog page, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project, and for hosting our audio files, and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the scholarly kitchen, bon appetit.